Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideIndieSports.com on the Rivals Network. Notre Dame officially announced the completion of its 2024 football schedule this week with, as expected, a Shamrock Series game against Army and Yankee Stadium. With the schedule in mind, we reached out to someone who knows plenty about Notre Dame's first opponent, Texas A&M. And that's Carter Carls, an AM graduate, a fellow South Bend Tribune alum, a beat writer for Gigam 24-7, a member of the Hall of Cheese, and a Papa John's aficionado. Carter, thanks for joining us. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's it's been so long. Uh I wonder if people even recognize me anymore. Um <laughs> I'm fatter, I'm older, I'm wrinklier. Uh, but no, it's it's good to be back with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, the you way clear detail was not one we needed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Carter, there's been plenty going on in your neck of the woods um, this off season. What do you think of Mike Elko's fit at Texas A&M? What has he done this off season to make people believe that this will this will work long term? Yeah, there's there's a lot of optimism right now uh, with Mike Elko just because of what he did. The last couple months uh, in the transfer portal, getting the the second best uh, uh, transfer portal class in the country, uh, got a ton of guys. Twenty three transfers, uh, completely flipped the roster. Twenty of those transfers had started elsewhere. Uh, so there there's uh, a lot of intrigue going in, in this spring football, just because there's so many new faces. Obviously, a new coaching staff. Uh, but still some returning guys to be excited about. Uh, Bill Connolly at ESPN did a story about returning production. He counted transfers as part of the math in his equation, but AM ranked uh, number one in the SEC and uh, 18th uh, overall. So uh, a lot of new names, but also a lot of guys who are experienced and, and have uh, produced quite a bit in college. So there's a lot of optimism, especially with a – you know, schedule where a lot of your big games are at home. Uh, th- there's hope that you know he'll he'll be able to uh, succeed in year one like he did at Duke. So Carter, you mentioned all the additions. What about the subtractions? How many of them left the roster, and who would maybe be the most critical losses? Yeah, they lost about nine. I want to get the number right. They lost uh, 19 scholarship guys to the portal. They lost uh, seven guys through expired eligibility, uh, four guys to the draft, a couple other guys uh, leaving for other reasons. But uh, so they lost about 30 scholarship guys. So a lot of a lot of losses for sure. Uh, a lot of those guys, for the most part, uh, weren't a you know, when we're talking about the portal, not a lot of difference makers, right? A lot of guys that were either buried in the depth chart or, you know, they're the backup quarterback, things like that. Uh, but the guys that were big losses for sure, uh, Walter Nolan's got to be probably at the top of that list, was the, you know, number o- number one overall player in, in his uh, 2022 class and was starting to really look like it last year as a sophomore um went to Ole Miss uh so not good for A&M that he's going to a, a team that you're you're competing with but um A&M at defensive tackle they that's kind of a big question mark you know can they can some of their y- younger guys step up uh so losing him I, I, you know they also lost McKinley Jackson another star defensive tackle so 
uh, and Isaiah Rakes, they're, they're key backups. So D tackle is kind of a position group uh, worth watching. Uh, Evan Stewart at wide receiver was another one. Uh, he was uh, certainly a, a five-star talent, looked like it. Uh, struggled with availability at times, but uh, when he did see the field, he produced. And uh, receiver, they feel good about that position, but uh, it could be better. So losing him wasn't great. A couple other guys uh, in that mix too, but I would say those are probably the two biggest losses. Carter, I think fans that don't know, Notre Dame fans who don't know much about Texas A&M or wondered why maybe A&M didn't pursue Riley Leonard, Duke's quarterback who has transferred to Notre Dame. Um, I imagine that's because there are high expectations for Connor Wegman. Can you sort of talk us through why you, there is a belief that Connor Wegman is, is the the future and the present for, for A&M? Yeah, yeah it's probably is hard to see from the outside because there's such a limited snapshot of, of what he's done only played a handful of games obviously got hurt last season, but uh, when he's played, he's been pretty impressive. Uh, Ole Miss in 2022, he lit it up. LSU, he kind of spoiled their season uh, in 2022. And then to start 2023, uh, from like a PFF standpoint, QBR and all the different metrics, uh, and, and definitely I test too, uh, he was – really starting to become who a lot of people thought he was as a former five-star quarterback uh, brings everything you want uh, as a quarterback when it comes to, you know, arm strength and accuracy and anticipation, all those little things. Uh, and so I don't think there was ever a question that they would, uh, would add a quarterback. I, I just don't think they were uh, really interested or looking into that market at all. Uh, Mike Elko knows Riley Leonard better than anybody. And I think he, what he saw in, in Wigman was kind of the future, kind of the guy who uh, could be the next draft pick at, at A&M. Uh, they also feel good about their backup quarterbacks, too. Uh, when Wigman got hurt uh, and when Max Johnson got hurt last year, Jalen Henderson went in in the bowl game. Mar Marcel Reed came in and th they held their own. Um, now, if they're, they're, if they're your starting quarterback next year, you know, maybe you get a Riley Leonard, but I think as backups, those guys are, are in good shape and will have time to develop. And so I think AM feels pretty good about their quarterback room and, and never really uh, considered adding Leonard. Does, does that include whoever the Max Johnson impersonator was that they had up warming up that one game? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, boy, we uh, we it was made very clear to us. No, no, Max Johnson was being a good teammate and he was lending his practice jersey uh, to Blake Bose, the walk-on <laughs> quarterback. And I said, yeah, I don't know if I quite believe that. Uh, so, you know, maybe uh, <laughs> maybe someone else will believe that. I'm not sure I do. Carter, why did uh, – I'd like to condense this down because it's such a broad question, but hopefully you can pick and choose what was the biggest reason, but why didn't it work out with Jimbo Fisher? Why was that such a disaster and such an expensive mistake? Oh, man, how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think the biggest thing is just the failure to adapt, right? Uh, you heard Bo even Bobby Petrino talk about it at Arkansas, that you know he was supposed to be the, the guy to change things and the, to spice up the offense, and he felt like, no, nah, I was just running Jimbo's off uh, offense, and I was just taking his orders, right? 
Uh, even when he wanted to adapt, he couldn't. Never really got into the transfer portal. His recruiting methods were pretty suspect. It seems like he was more into the rankings than you know actual fit. Uh, there was a report in the Athletic that he was obsessed with the two four seven sports composite, and that 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 he spent more of his energy on hey we want to have the number one class and not like hey who actually fits the roster, uh, and then just a, a archaic offense. I mean, you watch this uh, team; they they weren't uh, running things around their strengths and their weaknesses. They were you know kind of spitting what what do you get a, a square peg in a round hole. That's what it was like watching this offense. Uh, didn't have a very good offensive line uh, for the, each of the last couple of years. Uh, and he had a lot of quarterback injuries as well. Uh, don't know the number off the top of my head, but I think four or five of the starting quarterbacks in the last three seasons suffered season in, ending injuries. So uh, that's a lot to deal with. I don't care what coach you are. Uh, you're losing all your starting quarterbacks every year and you're on your third team quarterback every year. It's going to be very hard to have success. So that was part of it too. But overall, just failure to adapt and fa failure to keep the, the team healthy. And and the expression we use in the North is square wasp and around wasp nest. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Tyler. Uh, for those unaware, uh, Carter once uh, found a, a wasp nest in his in his uh, abandoned car at an at a, in his apartment when he lives up here in Mishawaka. Um, for those who lack the context for that, um, and, and he is constantly intermittently harassed by members of the animal kingdom or insect <laughs> kingdom. I am. I, I was on the phone with Eric the other day and. It was like these rabid dogs uh, just could not stand me. They were just losing their minds. And Eric thought it was the funniest thing. Well, there was a time I went to my car. There were ants on my car. I'm thinking, isn't a car closed? What's going on here? And then you had a time where I looked out the window. Or no, it wasn't the window. I went up to the, my car. And right as I'm about to open the door, there's like a three-foot-long snake on the very top of it uh, that had fallen off from the tree on top of the car i think but anyway it's like every time i call eric there's some disaster happening with my car or some animal and so he loves to give me a hard time but i deserve it because i don't know what the heck is going on well you adapt to that better than jimbo adapted to the texas a &M job. yes i i have not parked underneath that tree ever again i walk an extra length because i'm terrified of that tree <laughs> um carter in terms of the coaching staff that mike elko has put together who is the biggest either addition or retention that he had in your opinion um when he's put together the staff yeah, I'd say the biggest one's Colin Klein uh, out of Kansas State. Obviously, uh, everybody knows who that is. But, uh, you know, Mike Elko, the way he wants to run things, he wants to be more that CEO type. You know, he brought in Jay Bateman, uh, who obviously, you know, came from North Carolina and, and it has that, you know, experience. Florida, he, he kind of goes way back with uh, with Mike Elko, uh, 20 years. So uh, he's going to give him some, you know uh, – control over the defense but uh you still think it's a mike elko defense so really the focus is on the offense 
uh, with Colin Klein. He's, you know, the way he's described is like, obviously he's a, a younger dude. He's in his thirties, but he's sort of like the, uh, for lack of a better phrase, just a church pastor who is a genius. Like he's just, he's the kind of, for people who don't know, he didn't kiss his wife until his wedding day. Uh, that just kind of shows you who he is. He's, he's the Boy. gosh, golly, darn it kind of guy. Uh, and he, but at the same time, everyone raves about him. So he's not like this uh, goofball. Uh, he's, he's, you know, kind of does, things in a modern way and uh, really likes to run the football. He obviously had Will Howard at Kansas state, like to run with the quarterback. We'll see how much he does with that at A&M, but uh, where he goes, uh, there's obviously been a lot of interest in him. Uh, the last few hiring cycles took a lot for him to go away from Kansas state, obviously his alma mater. So coming to A&M, I think he sees it as, Hey, if I do a good enough job here, Maybe I get a head coaching job at another Power Five school and just keep ascending. And so he's kind of the one that everyone's intrigued by, and uh, how the offense looks. We'll see uh, more this spring. I'm having trouble getting past not kissing the wife until the wedding day, but okay. well, yeah, hopefully, hopefully his offensive game plans are more aggressive than his conservative <laughs> dating approach. <laughs> wow, she was uh, very patient. Okay. Um, so you have a much longer background with Texas A&M because you went there, you grew up Texas A&M fan, you were brainwashed into liking them and Papa John's pizza, <laughs> but you did cover Notre Dame during a pretty successful stretch for Notre Dame. You covered, I believe, two playoff teams, uh, mm -hmm. both of Notre Dame's playoff teams. So I'm, I'm curious if you can contrast the two programs, A&M and Notre Dame, in terms of maybe talent level that you see and culture. Uh, well, I, 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 with Notre Dame now, it's different to compare just since I'm not yeah. around Notre Dame, but Notre Dame from back then, um, I, I mean, they seem to really have a, a great culture. And I think the biggest thing is – they were so good at evaluating. They just constantly bringing in guys like Julian Aquara, you know, three-star dudes that had a lot of developing to do and turning them into, you know, uh, NFL players. I, I felt like that was what was impressive. But the biggest thing that was lacking was, do they have the athletes? Do they have the receivers? You know, even watching them last year, I'm like, man, who are these receivers that they got on the field? Uh, we said so, that too. <laughs> <laughs> what is this offense? Like, can they throw a pass 30 yards? Uh, so, so it, yeah, that was definitely – it was always the tight ends, the running backs, uh, you know, running game, that kind of thing. But you never saw them stretch the field. You never saw them have this super dynamic uh, quarterback. Uh, Ian Book obviously did a great job, but it just it wasn't like a total game changer. At A&M, it's a little different. Uh, they haven't had the offensive line that Notre Dame has, but they've – you know, got all these fancy toys like uh, they did with Evan Stewart and uh, Walter Nolan and uh, Shamar Turner, these these guys that could be uh, top draft picks one day. Uh, so they A&M has more talent, but they have less of a fit and development, uh, if that makes sense. So for A&M, it's really held them back because, you know, uh, 
they just haven't had the success. Okay. If you don't have the fit, if you don't have the development, if everything doesn't work together, then you're not going to have much success. You might have an incredible receiving core, but if your offensive line can't block at all, then those guys aren't going to get open down the field. So that, that's been the biggest thing that's held A&M back. And I think it's why Notre Dame was constantly maxing out their potential because they identified guys really well. They developed them really well. And they had kind of a system, even though it was not perfect, even though it wasn't, you know, sexy offensively, they still were getting the job done and winning all the games that they needed to win. Carter, it's interesting now Texas is back, folks. Um, but Texas made the made the college football playoff last season and now is joining AM in the SEC. Um, I know I shared with you yesterday um the presentation that Chris Del Conte was making about the Texas joining the SEC and the whole state of Texas is burn orange and there's just a little dot for Texas AM <laughs> around College Station. What is what is the perspective of AM fans of this happening now when AM is down and starting a new hire and Texas is on the rise and now they're gonna be conference foes again? Yeah, they're annoyed because like look, <clears throat> for like a 10-year stretch. A&M was ahead of Texas. They they went to SEC and they had the Johnny Manziel years and, you know, Texas was firing Mac Brown and then cycling through coach after coach. And no, A&M didn't, you know, win a national title or win the SEC, but they felt, hey, uh, eight wins is better than five and seven, right? Uh, so it, they felt like they were ahead. And then they never imagined that Texas would be joining the conference as well. Uh, and then once they did, that's when it started to shift. And so uh, that's the concerning thing for AM is it's like, gosh, we had all this momentum, but we didn't capitalize off it. And now look what's going on. Now, I still think there is confidence that they can kind of close that gap. Uh, I think this coming season will be a huge one for Mike Elko because I, I think – A&M fans approach this year as not like a rebuild year or a like, oh, let's see how he does first year. They see all the talent that was left over from Jimbo and they see all the additions from the transfer portal. And they and they look at the schedule this year and they say, you know, this team's got to make the playoff. This team's got to win 10 games and, and finally break through because they do have the pieces. But you know, it's challenging when you're a new coach and you're instilling a new culture and you're in the SEC and, and all those things. But with a 12-team playoff, they look at it and they say, man, uh, there's no reason why they shouldn't make it this year, uh, at least as like a 10-2 and team. And so uh, there's high expectations that they can close that gap soon. But, you know, when you haven't done it, you just never know if it will happen, you know. Carter, there is something with Destiny and Brian Kelly and you. Um, you <laughs> were going on a romantic weekend with your now fiance, um, and you run into Brian Kelly in Baton Rouge in his first week on the job at LSU. You were at Florida State covering Florida State, and who's on the schedule? Brian Kelly and LSU. You go to Texas A&M, and start covering that team, Brian Kelly's on the schedule. So you're the Brian Kelly expert. Uh, for Notre Dame fans that kind of wonder how it's going for Brian Kelly going into year three, do you 
think that this is going to end up working out from Brian Kelly in the sense that eventually he could bring a national championship to LSU, particularly with Nick Saban out of the picture. You know, I still lean no for now because until he does it, I mean, just the odds are all against you. And now with the 12-team playoff, winning these extra games, I just think it's so hard in the SEC. And I think if there was a year to do it, it's probably last year when you have the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. You've got, you know, a great offensive coordinator. You've got a ton of talent. I mean, that receiving core doesn't get enough credit for how freaking amazing they were. And, uh, but what they failed doing was defense and the secondary. I mean, they were just absolutely horrendous there. And if they were average, I mean, I, I said this about A&M's 2013 team. If that defense is average, they win the national championship. Uh, if, if the defense was a little better in 2012, they probably won the national championship. But with Notre Dame or with LSU, if that defense was average, they were scoring – 45 points almost every single game. And it was kind of a down year uh, in the SEC. So uh, I felt like last year was the year to do it. And the fact that they were still nine and three tells me that he's not going to do it. And so, I mean, look, the stars could always align for him. Maybe he brings in the next Jane, Jane Daniels at some point, but you know, you got a long track record of this guy and he hasn't won a championship and you know, anytime he's come close, it hasn't really ended well. So I just don't know if I see it, but, you know, you're at LSU. You're always going to have the talent, um, and uh, he'll be in the conversation every year. I think with him, you have a really high floor. You're always going to win nine or ten games at least. But winning the big one, winning the, you know, playoff games necessary to win it, I just don't know if I see it. Uh, my follow-up to you is uh... – and and I don't want you to give away any trade secrets, but when you ran into Brian Kelly that day in Baton Rouge, you had a fairly deep and long conversation. And I'm wondering, was there, not asking you to reveal, but were there things that he said that surprised you? I mean, again, this is when leaving Notre Dame was still very fresh and, you know, he had already gotten the blowback about pron pronouncing the word family with an accent. <laughs> which I gave him a hard time for. Uh, but I just think it was uh, interesting how he gave me divorced husband vibes where it was just like talking about the wife a certain way where it was like, yeah, you know, they didn't have this for me. They didn't have that for me. He just did. He seemed bitter by how it went. Uh there were specific examples I may not get into, but he just, he was rattling off like, yeah, they didn't have this, they didn't have that, and made it seem like it was going to be challenging for Marcus Freeman to ever get there. I even said at one point, I was like, well, uh, like, what do you think about Marcus Freeman? Like, you think he's going to go in there and, and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, eh, well, it wasn't that he was like dissing Marcus Freeman, but it was more he's going to have some challenges that he'll inherit. Uh, it's not easy to be the Notre Dame head coach. It's not easy to get everything you want as the Notre Dame head coach. Uh, and he just seemed like at LSU, it was in a different tone of, yeah, I'm getting everything I want. I, I, 
any resource that's there for me to have, I have. And so uh, that was kind of the biggest takeaway for, for me because you never quite sense that when he was at Notre Dame. You know, he would say things, oh, we need a training table and we need, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it was, there was never like, a, you never, I mean, I mean, you guys were longer there covering him than I was, but it never seemed like he was just complaining all the time about, the lack of resources and and help from the administration. Well, you almost got me in trouble because on Twitter, then you said, Brian Kelly loves Eric Hansen. And Brian Kelly was as radioactive as he could be with the <laughs> Notre Dame fan base. So fortunately, people thought you were kidding. <laughs> yeah, I was kidding. Uh, no. <laughs> but I had mentioned to him, I was like, yeah, you know, because when you say my name's Carter Carls, they, he's probably like, who are you? But when I say, yeah, I worked with Eric Hansen, he says, oh, Eric Hansen, that guy. Yeah. So that was my way of uh, starting the conversation. <laughs> uh, Carter, last one's for me. How how big of a deal do you think it will be for AM to host Notre Dame to open the season? Do you think AM fans are excited about bringing Notre Dame to town? Um, and for Notre Dame fans who may be making the trip, what is one thing they have to do in and around College Station if they get down there? Well, I think uh, there hasn't even been time to think or talk about Notre Dame for AM. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They've spent months talking about Jimbo and Elko and the portal. They don't even know who's on the schedule first right now. Uh, but I think they're going to be hyped for this. I think they're even going to be more hyped uh, next year when they come to South Bend because, I mean, you don't – you're starting to see less and less, I feel like, of these big-time uh, out-of-conference matchups. You're going to see less and less of them. I think the SEC is going to move to a nine-game conference schedule. And, you know, it's almost like uh, – why schedule these games when mm -hmm. it may hurt you for the playoff? It may do more to hurt you than help you. Uh, so I think they're excited about uh, this. It's been a while since they've uh, played Notre Dame. Um, as far as what Notre Dame fans need to do at AM, I've already had a couple Notre Dame fans who remember me ask me that in my DMs. Uh, what, I've, what I've told them is uh, Northgate's kind of the big party spot at AM. Uh, if you're visiting, it's where like all the bars and, you know, restaurants are, it's right across campus. So it's within walking distance of the stadium. Uh, the Dixie chicken is kind of the big, like, if you look at any ranking list of like, Oh, where do I go in college station? That's like the big one. Uh, Dixie chicken? yeah, they call it the chicken, but, okay. but yeah, the Dixie chicken. Uh, it's not that special. I mean, it's got a really good ambiance. You feel like you're in Texas when you're in there, but it's not like the, the food will rock your socks off. I got to think more about the, the food, like what, what would be the best place to go. But I think if you're at Northgate, you drunkenly around somewhere to where you'll like, uh, the food. Uh, but I, I think there's, there's some good options there and it's kind of where the whole scene is at at AM. We're planning on having supper at your house, so you better start <laughs> planning a, the menu. All right, peanut butter sandwiches. I hope you like it. <laughs> Carter, real quick, I realize that we're on different networks, but you were kind enough to do 
our podcast. So where can people find your content? Say it very, um, very blurred so that they don't actually hear what you're saying. <laughs> I am at gigum247.com and then at Twitter at Carter Carls. Um, spring football's about a month away. So looking forward to it. Going to be a really exciting uh, spring for AM. A lot of competition, a lot of new faces. So looking forward to it. And will you be kidding, continuing your walk with what would you, what, what's your video series where you're walking around with the, with the yeah. camera in your face? The Gigam after party, I kind of stole it from our Arkansas guy, Trey Biddy. Um, we'll see if I do it again this year. Maybe uh, you guys will be a, a guest. Uh, we can walk with you. Uh, How did I with... not know about this? I'm just learning about this. Oh, yeah. You'll have to look it up. Gigam after party. Uh, okay. The Tennessee one might be the one to watch because right before recording it, I threw up. And so oh. I'm like sweaty. I look just terrible. I look green. And uh, <laughs> and I just keep it rolling. And I talked about I talked about how A and M's performance that day was probably why I threw up because it was so bad. Uh, so if you're wanting to be entertained, I would maybe check out that one because yeah, that was a mess. Okay, Carter, I make you this deal: if you do one of those Notre Dame week and you actually puke on camera, we will put it on our website. <laughs> All right. Challenge accepted. Oh, geez, Eric. Look what you've done. Uh, it sounds like more like the Gigam hangover than the Gigam after party. But yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Carter, we appreciate you taking time to talk to us. It's always good catching up with you. Uh, and we'll be seeing you soon. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Before we get to our question segment, I wanted to remind our listeners of our free subscription promo for InsideIndieSports.com. We have a 30-day free trial to that our podcast listeners have access to. If you want to try out a subscription to the site, that gives you free access to all of our premium content, the Insider Lounge message board, and you don't have to wait for the next podcast to ask us a question. You can take advantage of this offer by using promo code NDPOD. That's N-D-P-O-D when you sign up for a subscription on the site. You can also find a link to the deal in the podcast description or show notes. All right, now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at T James ND and Eric's at E Hansen ND. First one I have for us, Eric, is from Charles W. Wolf. Starting to get that irrational spring exuberance now that pitchers and catchers have reported. Is it possible the 2024 defense could be as good as the 2012 unit? You know, to be honest with you, um, Notre Dame's defense in 2023 was better than the 2012 defense in a bunch of categories. Um, they were better in even some significant categories like total defense, certainly pass efficiency defense. The 2012 team was better in run defense, but across the board, those were pretty comparable. Um, and yet the 2012 context was different. That defense got Notre Dame to the national championship game, even with some uh, of the offense's shortcomings, mm -hmm. this defense kind of evolved over the season and was championship level at the end of the year and was pretty good at the beginning of the year. But I think the 2024 defense has a chance to be better than both of those. There are still areas where Notre Dame needs the tumblers to line up, like the field end spot. They need uh, the safeties around Xavier Watts. 
to fill in nicely. They can't have key injuries. The young linebackers have to be as good as we think they're going to be. But I do think given some of the returning players like Riley Mills and Howard Cross, Xavier Watson, Jack Kaiser, that is the basis for a team that could be a top three defense. Yeah, I think there's definitely the potential. I, I think some of the statistics seem maybe out of reach, like Notre Dame in scoring defense finished second that year, and they allowed 12.77 points per game, which seems pretty crazy. But last year they only gave up 15.9, so that's not like a crazy leap, but um, may, maybe the weakness of this year's Notre Dame schedule helps in that, and that maybe Notre Dame can limit a number of these teams that it's definitely um, more talented than to very little points. Um, but yeah, I think that the talent is potentially there to be able to match that defense. I was surprised in looking, um, not necessarily that Notre Dame hit with better in total defense in terms of ranking, but that they gave up fewer yards. Cause you, I think my assumption would be like, as time has gone on, yards have been more plentiful in college football. Um, but Notre Dame gave up 305 yards per game that, that year and only 276 this past season. So, um, Certainly seems like it's within reach. It's not unreasonable at all, um, but certainly there's a lot of work to be done to make make sure that that actually happens. Next question is from at Henry Bede. What are you most looking forward to in the spring offensive line competition? For me, who emerges at the tackles and how much progress those tackles can make. And not that I'm not interested in the interior positions, but I, I'm really intrigued by the tackles on this team and uh, the potential of those tackles. Uh, and they're so different. You know, Tosh Baker was a really highly thought of prospect with great offers who will be going into his fifth year and really hasn't become that player. And yet he's a valuable part of this team, even if he's not a starter and, and chooses to stay at Notre Dame. Charles Jaggers is this big thick athlete um, who was able to get on the field as a starter for the Sun Bowl. And then Emil Wagner, who has been in this constant quest to gain weight, but an amazing athlete. So, you know, and then Garby Lambert, I don't expect him to compete once he gets here in June, uh, but he's a guy that's really high upsides. So I'm curious to see if he can find his way into the two deeps as a freshman. Well, we will complement each other well this spring because I am more interested in the interior uh, competition. <laughs> who who wins? Who's the odd man out? I mean, there, to me right now, there's four guys, Ashton Craig, Pat Coogan, Billy Strouth, and Rocco Spindler, who could all be starters at those three interior spots. Um, and I, I think for as intriguing as the tackle position is, I think the strength of the line will be in those interior, in, interior positions. Um, I think – there's a better likelihood that that those guys are better performing and higher performing this season than the tackles. Well, I think we're going to probably see some struggles at tackle unless guys take some really big leaps. Um, so I am, I'm, I'm more interested in, in how that interior works out and uh, what, 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 where that leaves Notre Dame with whoever doesn't make, make the cut there. All right, next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. What has to happen next fall for the season to be considered a success? And what's the worst record the team can have without it being considered a failure? 
I will make this simple. I will say what has to happen next fall for the se um, season to be considered a success. I would say Notre Dame making the 12 team playoff and that what's the worst record the team can have without being considered a failure. I would say a record that would exclude them from the playoff would be a missed opportunity. And the bar may be a little bit higher for them next year, just because of how the schedule sets up. Um, you know, 10 and two might not be good enough to make the playoff for Notre Dame next year, where a lot of years it would be just because if two of those losses are in November, let's say they beat Texas A&M, but they lose to Florida state and USC, you know, the timing of your losses figures into how the committee views you as a team. And I think 10 and two might, so 11 and one, I don't want to say failure, but yeah, not making the playoff would be a missed opportunity and a disappointment. Yeah, I think so. I, I have the bar even higher. I think a success is winning a playoff game, and I think a failure is losing a playoff game. Um, I, I, I would be guessing at what the actual records would be for those things to happen. Um, but I think if you get in the playoff and don't win, I don't know that that's necessarily going to feel like a success to me. Um, and... I think getting in the playoff is sort of an expectation, not a success um, in a 12-team uh, situation, especially with so much veteran players on this team. That I mean, if we're talking about a defense that can be as good as the 2012 team, yeah. then it's definitely a failure if you don't get to the playoff. Um, and I would say it's even a failure if you lose a playoff game. Because in the first round of the playoffs, you're not facing one of the top four teams. Well, I mean, in theory, they could be one of the top four teams. You're not facing one of the top four conference winners. Um, so those should be more winnable games than, uh, than a playoff, than a, a 14 playoff format. Um, so that's why I would say, um, it would still be a little bit of a failure if, if you lose a playoff game. Brett McMurphy had a, um, he's already done the mock playoff for next year. And he had Notre Dame as a seven seed playing 10th seed at Alabama in its first playoff game at home. All right, bringing Alabama up to up to Notre Dame. Um, yeah, I think I guess it should be like obviously losing the a first round playoff game would be a failure. Not you're gonna you're probably going to lose a playoff game. I probably should be more specific with my words there, but um, that's what I meant by in terms of being a failure because you could lose in the second round, and I don't think that would be a failure. All right, uh, next question is from Mister Nev at Mister Irish Red. To be a junior athletically, do they have to be academically junior? I'm trying to figure out how the transfer portal works. Mr. Nev, if I understand your question correctly, so I think it gets confusing for people this time of year because we already start referring to players on what their eligibility and academic year is going to be in 2024, mm -hmm. uh, in the 2024 season. But, but let's say if you've redshirted, most likely you are a senior academically and a junior athletically. If you haven't, you're a junior slash junior. Now, how does that relate to the transfer portal? If you have your degree when you transfer, it makes the admissions process much, much easier to get into Notre Dame and maybe a few other places like Stanford and Duke and Northwestern if you have that graduate you know, there's not really a question with your admissions. If you don't, then you're getting into new territory where Notre Dame is being coming more progressive with that. 
but certainly not an open admissions for somebody that's a true junior. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah. And I, I don't know what part of the transfer portal he's struggling with. Um, so just in case this is part of it, you can transfer in any year. You don't have to be, a. we have to wait to be a junior. You can transfer as a freshman. You can even transfer right after you sign. Like that's what Julian saying did with Alabama, signed with Alabama and transferred to Ohio state, um, because of the coaching change there. So, um, it, uh, but yeah, I mean, but in order to be a junior athletically, you do have to be an academic junior. Like you have to be progressing in school as well. You can't still be a freshman in school um, and be a junior athletically. You wouldn't be reading, meeting these the academic requirements to 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 progress um, as a student athlete. Um, Jack Quinn, JQ six thousand and eight, asks, "How do you think the committee will judge three and four loss teams out of the Big Ten and SEC that have beaten each other senseless?" against one and two lost teams from the ACC, Big 12, and Notre Dame. Should they bring back the BCS just for the committee to use as a tool, not as the final decider? So good question considering the Florida State case this year, but there was an injury cited if Travis uh, Jordan Travis was healthy. The committee suggested then Florida State is in with him. Um, but given your question jack i can't see a scenario where a four loss team in any in any scenario right. is in consideration and three losses pushing it winning still matters timing of when you win and lose still matters non conference games matter so they'll look at strength of schedule and again not all these with, with so many teams in the conference there are teams that will play very different levels of difficulty within that same conference yeah um the bcs is interesting as a tool because it doesn't take into account injuries at least the computers don't um but i, I think that the committee looks at those kinds of things as tools i think it does look at some computer models just but it still makes its own um evaluations and so forth so um I, I i'm sure we'll still get carping about who's left out but in general i don't think it's going to be viewed as that much of an injustice because the teams that are on the bubble with a 12 team playoff i don't know that are viewed as legitimate national contenders unless they had an injury that affected them um Whereas with a four-team playoff, I think everybody's viewed as a national title contender. Yeah, and I think, I mean, in terms of the three or four lost teams, like the only times those would be in contention if, if under the scenario, like maybe those teams are playing for the conference championship and one of their losses come from that. But even then, be, without divisions, you're not going to get like yeah. ten and two Iowa's not probably not making it to the the Big Ten championship game um in the future. Uh and they're probably not even going ten and two for that matter. But um so I think I think the chances of having two or three lost teams in the conference championship game is probably pretty low. And those would be the only teams that would have a outside chance of getting into the playoff, I would think. So I don't I don't think four lost teams are getting in. I don't I doubt a three loss team will get in. 
Um, maybe, unless that maybe maybe the other conferences are terrible too. Like maybe there's not a lot of one and two lost teams in the ACC, Big Twelve, and, or with Notre Dame. So obviously, it all depends on how the other schools across the country are faring. But um, in order to be, I, I don't know that a lot of two lost teams in those other conferences are very realistic to get in either, unless you have a very re- good schedule. Um, I don't know that Notre Dame would get in this coming year with a two loss record given its schedule and and not a lot of high-end teams and a lot of low-end teams on the schedule. So um, I think the committee has plenty of tools available to them in terms of evaluating teams. So I don't necessarily know that it needs to, the BCS of all things needs to be involved, but um, I'm sure they have plenty of ways to figure out who, who they believe deserves to make the playoff. All right, our last question today is another one from Maria Biafore. If each of you was made the head of college football for a day, what three changes would you make to ensure the game moves forward in a positive direction? Well, I would need a magic wand as well because (laughs) there are so many things that involve legal stuff. I would want as level of a playing field as you can for NIL in terms of rules, penalties, and applications of that. And I don't know, that may be um, just a fantasy. I would want to roll back unlimited multiple transferring. I think I like the grad transfer. I think if you're a grad, you should be able to transfer. And we'll see less of the multiple transfers and the multiple grad transfers because we're almost to the end of the COVID exemption players. And once you have a five-year window to complete your eligibility instead of a six. I think that's going to slow it down. But I don't like somebody that can transfer after their freshman year, transfer after their sophomore year, transfer after their junior year. I think that's garbage. Um, And then I was torn between doing something with targeting and addressing the whole thing about opt-outs in December. And I would address the opt-outs in December, maybe there would be some kind of financial incentive or insurance incentive to get players to play in the postseason games. I would hate, I'm not as concerned about bowl games as I am if somebody decides to sit out a playoff game. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that you could do. um yeah there's a long list that well yeah one like this one is very broad because i think there's a number of different ways you could that this can address but i think fixing the calendar um of college football whether that's the recruiting calendar the transfer portal windows um i'm even a little bit nervous about the playoff schedule um and how far it's going to go into january and you're competing with the nfl at that time of year more when the nfl's in this playoff season too um, so I think that might be tough. I don't, I don't know if you get rid of a game. I think, I mean, maybe, maybe every team needs to start at the end of August rather than the start of September. Um, I think they're the, the schedule. I'm very interested to see how it plays out with the 12 team playoff and how everything is handled around the end of an academic semester in December, the holiday season, um, and then competing against, um, the NFL when it's at its, hottest um isn't necessarily something that i think will go in college football's favor um nil transparency i don't i don't know what if and, and what the solution for nil is but i think transparency in some form or fashion um 
could be the best possible way. Now, I think there's always going to be people that people that don't follow the rules, but if at least you have the rules in place to people have to report what they're getting, how they're getting it, who's giving it to them. Um, maybe that puts some, allows a clear view into what's going on and then allows guides to places to know and kids to know like who's balking on their ideal promises. Um, I think that would be probably best for everyone involved if there was more transparency there. Um, and then third one, which might probably be maybe my first priority was even evening out the conferences. I don't like where college football is heading with the big 10 and sec sort of being the super conferences and everything else being sort of second rate. Um, so I think, uh, finding a way to even that all out and figure, figure a best way forward to have a balanced, um, conference, um, alignment would be, would be something that I think could be better for college football moving forward. Although for as much as we complain about some of the stuff that happens, I, I think people are still just as excited to watch the games. Like I don't, I don't know a lot of people that have stopped watching college football because of the changes that have happened in the last several years. All right, that is it for today's episode of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share a podcast feed with someone who has a cheap hotel room near College Station. Um, As I mentioned earlier, we're offering a 30-day free trial to our podcast listeners who want to try out a subscription to InsideIndieSports.com. So please take advantage of that with code NDPOD. That's N-D-P-O-D. We're still in weekly mode with the podcast, even though we skipped last week, and we have Football Never Sleeps over on YouTube next Tuesday. So keep up with us in both of those places. Until then, stick with InsideIndieSports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. (laughs) 